Hey, it's good to be back with you tonight. Glad to see you. Um, just before we get kicked off, I just want to encourage you guys, if you would join me in being in prayer. I, I think everybody in this room knows we've been working, 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 working to try to get the financing figured out for the building project uh, that we're in. I, I wish I could give you a definitive answer. I can't give you a definitive answer. I can tell you that we're at a place that two banks seem to be saying to us, we're going to do this. Now, the reason you don't have me jumping up and down is because we've gotten to this point before and that had, oh my. So what I'm going to ask you to do starting tonight um, is to just up it, whatever that is, in what you're doing in prayer about the buildings. Um, that you would just, if you even could think about it, even on a daily basis, just say, God, would you please give us that opportunity uh, to do this for your glory. And guys, I just want to say this out loud again, because I, I don't want us in the midst of all this to forget why we're doing what we're doing. And at the end of the day, guys, it's not about building bigger buildings and who cares about that stuff. You and I are doing what we're doing because you and I believe at our very, very core that this is a broken, messed up world. I'm sitting in staff meeting today, and one of our gals working in our children's ministry says, you need to know there's four kids in our, ch in our children's ministry. So these are kids in Christian homes, the whole bit. There's four kids between the ages of seven and 11 who are talking about cutting themselves and suicide. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, we, we live in a screwed up, messed up world. You turn on the news. This world is broken. And at the end of the day, you and I believe that the only real answer for this world is Jesus Christ. Just period. That is the answer. That is the only thing that has the propensity to heal this world. And more specifically, guys, we live in a culture, we live in a community of just broken people. Broken people who go to bed every night without any real hope, wake up the next morning to do what they did the day before and have absolutely no hope that their life changes. And you and I know that the hope is that they would encounter Jesus Christ. Hence, everything we do here, everything we do here is to try to have the opportunity to take a broken, fallen world and broken, fallen people, introduce them to our Jesus, and then grow them up as far as we can spiritually. That's, that's what every breath we take is about. And building these buildings is about more space for more people to come and be in the room and hear about our incredible Jesus with us. Because it's crazy, crazy, crazy that at 10.30 on Sundays we turn people away. It's just a, for a... <laughs> For a church in a broken world that has the chance to change lives, that just can't be the answer at the end of the day. So I'm just going to invite you to pray. I'm going to invite you to pray for buildings, not for building's sake, for buildings for Christ's sake and for his glory and for his praise. Okay? So I'm, I want us to do that real quick right now. I want us to just take a moment and pray together, and, uh, and then we'll jump into uh, Romans chapter 13. Let's do that. Let's stand real quick. Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we come to you in this moment, and you know, you know the absolute ache of our hearts. The ache of our hearts is for our neighbors whose marriage is messed up and falling apart. The ache of our heart is for that kid we see walking down the street who you can just tell by their demeanor and appearance is living a life in just darkness without hope. And God, you've given us this story, you've given us this good news for the world. And God, 
by your grace, uh, the place is full. Uh, there are scores and scores of people here. And yet on our watch, on our watch, we would not want to turn away even one who could know the kingdom, who could come to salvation in Jesus Christ, who could grow up learning about you and their entire lives be different because we were faithful on our watch. And so, God, we're just asking, would you give us that opportunity? Would you give us the chance to have more rooms, to tell more people, to change more lives? And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Okay, Bibles, here we go. Romans uh, chapter 13. Seems like we've been hanging out in 13 uh, far too long. You guys must have uh, really, really, really slowed Ken down last week, so... We're going to try and uh, get moving today. So Romans uh, chapter 13, I think we're in verse 11. Does that sound right to everybody? Yes, no, maybe. If you don't say anything, I'm just going to start where I want to. All right, 11. Okay, so Romans chapter 13, let's uh, jump into verse 11. Uh, Here's what it says. And do this, okay? And so if you remember, uh, what's been talked about before is how we're to conduct ourselves in a broken world, in a world where we're called to be underneath leadership that often is inferior leadership. It's often unfair leadership. It's often unjust leadership. And yet it says in that moment, you're going to obey in in a Christ-like way with the exception being, what's the exception to following leadership? Who knows? Who can remember? When do I, when do I pull the punt button? When? Come on, runners, get ready. Let's go. When do, I, when do I pull the punt button when my leader does what? Okay, we've got to start chapter 13 over again. When do I pull the punt button? Okay, you got one back there. Okay. When it's against God's word. Yeah. If my leader asks me to do something that is directly in violation to God's word, God always wins that conversation. Remember, Peter said to the Sanhedrin, you choose, you judge between yourselves. Is it better for me to obey God or to obey you? Because you just asked me to do something. You asked me to shut up about the person of Jesus Christ. It's an absolute conflict with what God's asked me to do. Okay? But other than that, Scripture says, let God use your authority to teach you what God is doing with, dealing with in your life. So, now to verse 11. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. This isn't the time to uh, be relaxing. This isn't the time for you to be checking out of the things that God has put you on mission to do. Wake up out of your current slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Now, that's that's an interesting phrase. Your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Because... I thought when you got saved, when you became a Christian, that was your salvation moment, right? So how could Paul here be saying that your salvation is nearer now than it was when you first believed? Because I thought I got saved when I believed. Isn't that an interesting question? So how do we think that works? Mike Runners, get ready. What do we think Paul is saying there when he says, my salvation is nearer now than it was when I first believed? Anyone want to? Come on. I don't make that much fun of you when you get it wrong. 
Tonight I might, but I don't normally. What do we think? My salvation is complete when I go home to the Lord. Hmm. But I but when you get saved, aren't you a hundred percent saved? So then what do I mean when I say my salvation is complete when I go to the Lord? Yep. When Jesus comes to get us. Okay. But but again, and okay, so maybe that is what it's saying, but why would when Jesus comes to get me, my salvation be complete if I'm already saved? If I'm already a Christian, isn't my salvation already complete? Okay, right here. Your salvation is already complete, but there's a purification process as you continue to grow to be a more mature Christian and you grow through the refiner's fire and God is making you more holy and Christ-like. Okay, all right, so you guys are getting there. All right, here we go. So, do we have the thing up? Do we have the thing on the screen tonight? Yes? No? No? No screen tonight? Tonight was the night. Oh, there it is. Okay. I was going to say, tonight, the whole thing is the screen. What are we going to do? All right. So, guys, we're right. And what you need to know is that in Scripture, there are moments when it talks about salvation. And it's talking about this moment. This moment when I admit that I'm a sinner. This moment when I say, look, I get that I need a Savior. I can't work my way to heaven. I can't be religious enough for heaven. And I invite Jesus Christ to my heart and I ask him to forgive my sins. That's my moment of salvation. But there's many senses in which, although, here's what you got to get, I am completely saved in that moment. Okay? So in other words, something happens in that moment that is irreversible. The, one, the moment I become a Christian, there the Bible says I am born... Again, there is something so dramatic, so powerful that it literally resets my life. It's as if I was born again, and that thing is so powerful that it is irreversible in my life, but it isn't necessarily complete because, I know this is hard to admit, how many would say since I became a Christian, I think I might possibly have sinned once or twice? Okay. And the reality is, though, if I had actually received all of the purification, all of the redemption, if my sin nature, which is a part of something that I received when my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam fell and he warped this humanness of me and bent me towards sin, that's still there, right? That hasn't been eradicated yet. That hasn't been healed yet. Right? I have not been taken back to being completely pure. Right, So there's a sense sometimes in Scripture when it talks about my salvation that it's actually talking about the process of growing in Christ. Of matter of fact, remember when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Live out this thing that started here. Live it out... In your life, grow closer and closer. We call that process, anyone remember what we call that process of growing in Christ? Sanctification, okay? But even as we do that, I've got, I've got bad news for the Nazarenes. Um, you will never become sinless. You will never get to the point 
this side of heaven where you will actually be free from sin. Okay? You will always, always struggle. And here's my, here's my best shot at helping you with that. The best Christian, okay, you can't, because you can't count Jesus as, as a Christian because he is Christ, right? But the best Christian who ever walked the face of the earth is probably a guy by the name of Paul. And remember Romans chapter 7. What did he say? Man, there's so many things I know I should do and I still don't do them. And there's all sorts of things I shouldn't do and I find myself doing them when I know I shouldn't be doing them. So the best Christian ever told you that this side of heaven, he was still struggling with sin. Okay? So there's also a sense in which my salvation becomes complete when I get to heaven. When I stand in the presence of Jesus Christ, when I get my new body, when my sin nature is eradicated, when all of the brokenness that is this thing of human, which includes physical brokenness, so all of my physical infirmities are going to be gone. The really, really cool part for all of us that are in here that are going, okay, that's good because my body is wearing out, and now we get to be 29 for forever. Really? For 29 for forever? And then the second part is, all that is broken spiritually in my life is healed, it's fixed, it's cleansed. And that happens in heaven. Okay? My best shot at this verse here, what he's saying is, and you can go either one of two ways, I don't care which of the two ways you go to because it doesn't change anything, and Bible scholars have argued it. Uh, or do you not understand in the present time the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than it was when you first believed? Some say they think it's talking about the return of Jesus Christ because what's going to happen the minute Jesus Christ comes back in the rapture? Okay, so here, here I am. Jesus, when he comes in the rapture, does what? Okay, Revelation series was not that long ago, guys. Okay. Does what? Thank you, Mike Runners. Mike Runners, you're sitting down. Okay, so what happens when Jesus comes in the rapture? He catches us up. He catches us up. So we go up. He meet, Remember, he meets us in the air. Little clouds, okay? The rat, in the rapture, Jesus does not come to earth. It's not the second coming, it's the rapture. But you and I get caught up into heaven, and in that moment, you and I get caught up into heaven, everything that was promised to us in our salvation becomes complete. The body is completely transformed and changed. The Bible says we're given a new body. We lose our sin nature, All, everything, everything is changed. Our salvation becomes complete. So it's possible that that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the rapture. The other possibility is he's just talking about, hey, when you die, you get to heaven, that's when it's going to be complete. And so when he says, hey, it's nearer now than when you believed, he's just simply saying, because you're getting older. You're, you know, you're getting older. You know, when you were five and you asked Jesus in your heart, you still had 80 more years before this was a problem. Now that you're 55, you better wake up from your sleep because you only got about 25 more years before this is, you know... So get, get going with serving Jesus. I don't care which way you interpret there because at the end of the day, the, the answer is still the same. Stop sitting around. Stop acting like this is never going to come to an end, this life. Start serving Jesus with all your heart because someday we're going to stand in heaven. Someday we give an account.
Someday we answer for the life that we're living. And that day, whatever that day is, the day you die or if it's the return of Jesus, second coming of Christ, is closer now than it was when you first believed. Time is ticking, and it's not infinite. Okay? All right, back to the passage. Uh, Verse 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Here's what I think is interesting about what Paul says here. He says, look, the task of a Christian, what you and I are to be doing, we're supposed to be putting aside. It's almost like you and I are taking off all the old ways of life, and we're supposed to be kind of dropping them to the sideline. And then it says, as we've now removed those things, those old habits, those old behaviors, they're supposed to be replaced with the armor of God. I'm supposed to be putting on Christ in place of the old things that used to be part of my life, which is an interesting illustration because think about this. If I retain a part of my old life, guess what there's not room for? My new life. And what does it mean to you that Paul is saying? With every part of your old life that you refuse to deal with or you refuse to bring under submission of Christ, you realize that refusal means you're also refusing to take on this new life in Christ. Which just simply means, guys, think about this. If you and I don't take on the new life in Christ, we'll never fully experience Jesus. Don't you wonder why there are so many Christians out there that are so frustrated in their Christian walk and they go, man, I tried this and... You know, I just don't know that it's working for me. Guess what you know without even asking them? The minute a Christian says, boy, you know, I just don't know if this Jesus thing is working for me. You know, you know, verse 12. You have failed to take off your old life. You have failed to put on the new life. That's why it's not working. That's why you're struggling in your life. Back to the passage. Let us behave decently as the day, as in the daytime, not in carousing. What's carousing? What's carousing? Partying, looking for trouble, chasing women. Isn't it? Women are always the problem, right? All right. Uh, drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, debauchery, not in dissension. What's dissension? What's dissension? All right, Mike, someone raise your hand. What's dissension? I'm actually feeling dissensuous right now, but what is dissension? Rebellion. Rebellion, all right. Give me some more for it, right there, okay. Bringing strife into your life and others. Bringing strife into your life and others. See, because here, here's why, and, and, and I think dissension is, in essence, rebellion. But you know what? We, we, we dress it different than that, don't we? Boy, we just need to pray for our pastor because I'm not sure he's getting in the Bible enough. You know what? We need to pray for Brother Tim because I'm pretty sure he's greedy right now. And don't we dress dissension in, well, you know, I'm really trying to be helpful. 
And I'm really, you know, I, I, just, I, just, I just have some places I disagree. And, and, and I feel the need to share that with my brothers and sisters so they can counsel me on my disagreement. Number one church killer. Anyone want to know? Dissension. Dissension. And, and here, here's what you, just to say it out loud. You're never going to find a church that you go, man, that church is perfect. You, you never are. And you've probably heard someone say this. If you ever find the perfect church, do not go to it because you would ruin it. You, know, you, would, you would mess it up. So don't go. And the reality at the end of the day, guys, it's not about finding the church where you agree with 100%. Because can I just give you a clue? I'm the senior pastor of our church, and I don't agree 100%. I just don't. There's things that my staff wants to do. They say, hey, Pastor Lynn, let's try this. I think it'll work. And I go, I don't think it'll work. But, they, you know, we give them permission because part of this thing is saying, hey, let's go try things for God. Uh, I'm just telling you. What you look for is a church that you say, I believe where they're going. I believe they love the Lord Jesus. I believe they're true to the Word of God. And I believe where they're going. And I'm just going to go with them. And I'm going to support it. And I, and, I, and I know, I know there's going to be a Sunday I walk in and the music's too loud. There's going to be a Sunday I walk in and they raise a crown. And I'm going, why are they raising crowns? I don't know why they're raising crowns. It's going to be that day. There's going to be the moment that you don't understand. And, and what you need to know at the end of the day is it doesn't matter. But your dissension might. Your dissension could ruin it for all of us. Ah, dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And now, chapter 14. Here we go. Except, okay, here's the deal in chapter 14. Chapter 14 is an interesting chapter. Chapter 14 is going to help you and I navigate the gray areas. What are gray areas? Anybody know? What's a gray area? Ah. Okay, here we go. We think we know a gray area. Or what gray areas are, I should say. What are gray areas? Things that aren't well, black and white. Yeah, things that... <laughs> I've been wrestling with that. <laughs> Thank you for the clarity. Uh, that was amazing. All right. So, but actually the answer is correct. Um, there are things that in Scripture, Scripture does not clearly or emphatically spell out how we're supposed to behave in that area. It may give some hints. It may give us some nudges that we rely on. But at the end of the day, you can't pull out chapter and verse and go, whoa, 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 whoa. If a lady's hemline doesn't come within two inches of her knee, it's too short. It's a gray area. Because Scripture says she should dress modestly. But the million-dollar question is, what's modest? Because what was modest in the 1800s isn't modest today. And so now all of a sudden you and I are navigating as Christ followers a gray area. Because God said, be modest, and yet didn't tell us what modest was. Does that make sense? Which makes it a gray area. It makes it an area that you and I are supposed to figure out. Okay? 
And the interesting thing is Romans 14 is going to give you and me some guidelines about how, as followers of Christ, to navigate the gray areas of our lives. Okay, so here we go. It's going to be fun. We're going to get mad, but it's going to be fun. All right. Uh, Chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Except those whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, here's what it means in this sense when it says their faith is weak. This is not talking about they're doubting God, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're not sure if they're a Christian because their faith is weak. What it's saying here is, and, and maybe I can give you a context that will help just a little bit. One of the major disputes in the early Christian church, we're going to find this out next semester when we go to 1 Corinthians, was whether or not a Christian should eat meat that was sold in the marketplace. Here's why. Because if you went to the common marketplace in the city, it was common practice to offer that meat, to pray over that meat to pagan idols. You did that because most of the time you hung your meat out in the open. Flies were crawling all over that meat. It wasn't uncommon to get sick from eating meat that had been out there a little bit too long. So the answer became, we will offer this meat, we'll we'll offer it in prayer to idols. And you would buy meat in the marketplace, and it was certified idol-prayed meat. Okay? So, but this now becomes a debate in the church that goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Should Christians be eating idol-prayed meat? I mean, should they be doing that? Because if you're a Christian and... Your neighbor knows that you bought meat at the marketplace that was offered to idols and prayed for by idols. Are they going to think that you're trusting in the idol to make the meat okay? And what does that say about your faith in God if you're eating idol-prayed meat? There were other Christians who said, whoa, whoa, no, 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 wait, wait. You and I both know there's no such thing as false gods. I mean, those idols are just little carved pieces of stone. So no matter what prayer they offered to that little piece of hunky rock, it didn't change anything. So it doesn't matter if they prayed to it because there was no power in the idol. And this became a debate in the early church. It was a, ready, gray area. Should a Christian eat meat that was offered to an idol? Or should a Christian abstain from meat that was offered to an idol? And what he means in this context when he says, hey, this person's faith is weak. It's in the context of that debate. It would be a Christian who says, hey, I'm just telling you, that bothers me. That bothers me that you would eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol. That just, it's weak in the sense it bothers my conscience. My conscience is wounded by that, okay? That's the sense in which it says, the brother here, of weaker faith, okay? It's not lesser faith. And maybe another way of saying it is, they're more sensitive on this issue. This issue bothers them greatly. Does that make sense? Nod your head so I feel good. Come on, nod. All right, there we go. All right, it bothers me. Okay, so here we go. Verse 2. One's person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. So here's what's happening. They're a Christian. Uh, They've gone over to their neighbor's house. The neighbor says to them, hey, uh, we were having meat tonight. And someone says, well, where did you get the meat? Oh, I got it down at the marketplace. Everybody knows, offered to idols. And so one Christian there says, well, okay, I mean, now that you've said that out loud and now that I know that, I'm just not going to eat any of the meat because I don't want you to think that I'm relying on idol-blessed meat. And so I only ate vegetables at dinner that night. 
You get what's happening? You get the debate that's going on. Uh, the one who eats everything, okay, so the one who sits at the same table. So now there's another Christian on their side of the table, and he hears the same thing. Hey, this, this meat was offered to idols. I bought it in the marketplace. And he eats everything. He's chowing down on the roast. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. So you can't sit there and laugh at your Christian brother and say, look, you're just, you're just overly sensitive, dude. I mean, why is this bugging you? You shouldn't be deriding him for that. Uh, and the one who does not eat, the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. See, the one who's saying, man, that bothers me and I just can't feel the freedom to eat meat offered to idols. And I'm just telling you, I think you're sinning when you do it. I think you're, I think you're a lousy Christian for doing that. You get what's happening. You get the tension that's going on in the early church over gray areas. Okay? All right. So, you and I are not struggling with eating meat, right? Do we have any vegetarians in the room? One. Okay. I think they called you the weaker Christian, but that's okay. That's okay. I don't know. I'm giving you a hard time. All right. So this is probably not a critical issue within the church today. Hey, do you eat meat offered to idols? Do you not eat meat offered to idols? But the reality is you and I do have gray areas to navigate, right? Areas that God has not been 100% clear on and has left for you and me to try to navigate. How do I flesh this out, pardon the pun, as a Christian? Okay? So what are some of those areas? Huh? Okay. All right. Microphone runners, we need you again. What are some of the areas that are gray areas in the church? Predestination. No. Predestination is not a gray area. They're just wrong. No, I'm teasing. Here's why it's not a gray area. That is simply a doctrinal issue that we can agree to disagree on. But I don't think anybody is saying, hey, if you don't agree with me, you're sinning. Does that make sense? And no one is saying, hey, if I believe that, I feel like I am sinning. These are more lifestyle issues. These are not doctrinal issues. Okay. Hello. Okay. Oh, things like dancing, certain kinds of music. Okay. Dancing might be one, especially if you're a Baptist. Uh, certain kinds of music might be. Yeah. Uh, should, should a Christian... Um, What's the type of rap where they're like saying really demeaning things about women? There's a name for that. It's not just rap. It's, it's, is it gangster rap? Is that what it is? You're making it up. You're making it up. Okay. All right, but you, you understand what I'm saying. There, there is some rap music that is, that is purely... And, and so then the question comes, should I as a Christian be listening to that type of music, right? That's a gray area, right? Because here's the deal I'll just say out loud. The second you and I as a Christian say, well, you shouldn't be listening to gangsta rap. You shouldn't be doing that. Someone else is going to go, well, you know, you shouldn't be listening to country because it's talking about sleeping with another man's wife and stealing his dog, right? (laughs) Shouldn't be listening, right? It's gray area, isn't it? When you listen to just straight up rock music, when they start do it, talking about doing drugs and everybody having sex, is that okay for a Christian to listen to that music? And yet I'll bet you that every one of us in this room has listened. Because you can't turn on your radio to a secular radio station and not have those be the themes. 
But of course, when our kids start to listen, we're going to tell them not to, right? See, this is a gray area. This is one of those things that's hard to navigate as a Christian in our culture. What else are gray areas? Yep. Huh? Whether or not we should eat pork. What now? Should we eat pork? We should eat pork. Okay, that's only in Jewish communities, but okay, I'll put it down. Should we eat pork? Yep. What, what, what? We need runners. Oh, you got a runner. Okay, all right. The lights are blinding me. Sorry. It was just a quick question to the pork. Um, wasn't that against the Jewish dietary laws that they were told not that they, they had the Jewish dietary laws? And yes. now they became Christians. And now in Transfiguration, Peter told them that uh, they told Pete, Christ told Peter that they can eat anything they want to eat. Yeah. And it changed the whole outlook, the, right. the way, the way so, they thought up. So there were surely early first century believers who were struggling with, are we still required to eat the Jewish dietary laws? And you get that all through the book of Acts. That is not what's happening here. This has, in other words, think about this for a second. Here's how you know it's not Jewish dietary. One Christian is eating the same meat. The issue is not, is it pork? The issue is, was it prayed to an idol about? So this has nothing to do with Jewish dietary laws has everything to do with, I live in Ephesus, and they just prayed and offered that meat to Diana of the Ephesians. And what does that mean if I eat the meat that a pagan god is supposed to have blessed? Okay, all right, what else? What else is gray areas? Movies. Move, movies. Isn't that a great, let me ask you a question. Uh, should, should a Christian go to an R-rated movie? The Passion of Christ was an R-rated movie. Aren't there some PG-13 movies out there right now that when you were a kid, your parents would have killed you if you'd seen them? How many of you have done this? How many of you have had this experience? You go back to watch a movie you watched when you were a kid with your kids now, because it was such a cool movie, and then all of a sudden that scene comes up, and you're like, what? What did my parents do? Let me watch that movie. That was wrong. Anybody done that besides me? All right. Good. I'm not the only pagan. Okay. All right. What else is gray areas? So I'm going to kind of categorize this about something like wealth, power, and stature. That's always been something that we all seem to have struggled with. I want a new boat. I want, you know, is, is it, you know, um, I want a new, I want a third car. Anybody here believe a third car might be sin? Okay, probably not a gray area. All right. How about, how many people believe that the pastor has a third car at sin? Okay, well then maybe it is a gray area. Okay, maybe it is. Okay. Uh, what else? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about the idol itself that's behind all this. We know as we study this and we talked about it that uh, they weren't just a, a stone idol. There was, you know, Satan or his demons were behind it. And in relation to what we're talking about here, uh, how far do we have to go to recognize that or not recognize it in this gray area stuff? Yeah, and I, so again, I think this is probably what the church was dealing with too, was to say, hey, um, when I begin to wor- worship false gods, at what point do I actually maybe even get into some, some level of demonic involvement? So, matter of fact, uh, one of the questions I was going to ask in the room, uh, is it okay for a Christian, whoops, 
What? This is so wrong. All right. Is it okay for a Christian to have a Kachina doll in their house? Because you realize a Kachina doll is a representation of a dancer who most often was trying to summon a dark spirit in native culture. Which surely would have some sort of demonic potential there, right? And we would say, if anything actually happened, then it surely had to be demonic. So as a Christian, should I have a kachina in my house? And yet they're kind of cool looking, right? So, gray area. I collect all sorts of artifacts. I love all sorts of historical things. And I've got all sorts of things from the time of Christ. I've got stuff from the time of Abraham. It just intrigues me to do that. Well, I I just got to tell you that when you go out to get artifacts, one of the most common artifacts you can find are idols. I mean, because they were everywhere. And so then I get left with the question, even though I'm doing it and I know the idol's not real, do I actually want to bring an idol into my house? That's a gray area, isn't it? You know, would I want to do that, even though I know the idol's not real? Right? What else are gray areas? Anything else? Yeah. What about drinking? What now? Drinking alcohol. Drinking alcohol might, yeah, might be for some. Ring me, ring, 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 yeah. What, any others real quick? Here, dressing inappropriately. All right, dressing inappropriately. Are you talking about like modestly? Are yes, we talking modestly. about cross-dressing? Are we talking, <laughs> okay, all right, so modesty. And yoga. And yoga. No, guys, that's actually a good question because you realize that an awful lot of yoga came out of, um, it's not Hindu, it's uh, is a Buddhism, Buddhist worship. And so that's been a controversy within Christian circles. Should a Christian actually be involved in yoga-type classes? Yeah. Okay. Tattoos. Tattoos. Yep. Taking medicine. Taking medicine. Okay. Hello. <laughs> Some of you need to take medicine, but that's okay. That's all right. No. Okay. Um, let me just throw a couple more out there so that we have them. And then we'll go. Um, should a Christian say that word? Um, because, you know, when, when do I actually cross the line that I'm actually swearing? Is it okay to say a word that's close to swearing as a Christian? Or does that give the impression to non-Christians that I'm actually swearing? How, how, where, where is that line? When is it actually a cuss word? It's a gray area, right? Um, what else did I have here? Uh, what about smoking? Is, can a Christian smoke? Or is it absolutely sinful to smoke? Scripture doesn't say anything about smoking. Other than I think it says something about Philip lit his, onto his camel. But I think it's the only closest you get to smoking. Um, the deal, and then uh, one last one. What about gambling? What about gambling and a Christian? Should a Christian gamble? 
And then if I shouldn't gamble as a Christian, does that include bingo? Which means I can't ever go to a Catholic church again. But, I, you know, what, is, what does that all mean? All right, so you get it, guys. There are gray areas. There's gray areas that you and I have to navigate as Christians. Did you have one more you wanted to do real quick? Yeah. Halloween. Halloween. No, that's a great one. You know what's really interesting about Halloween? Uh, some of you guys will know this. If you take the clock back about 25 to 30 years ago, churches, and think about how conservative churches were 25, 30 years ago. Think about how conservative Christians were 25, 30 years ago. And churches commonly um, uh, built and then hosted haunted houses at the church. And then we got into a time where all of a sudden we thought we had a whole bunch of like demonic worship going on in our culture. And all of a sudden we said as Christians, no, we shouldn't be any anywhere near that. And now the pendulum's swinging back and all of a sudden you seem to see Christians. It was interesting. Years ago, I used, we used you know, Harvest Festival that we do here every year. 20, 25 years ago, I used to do it at a church in Southern California. And we would say to all the people in the church, hey guys, be, be really careful what you wear because we don't want to give the wrong impression when people come. So, you know, please don't wear dark costumes. All of the 55-year-olds came as witches. All the 20-year-old moms were like freaked out, right? It's a gray area, right? It's a gray area. And, and you and I can argue, hey, it's dark gray or it's light gray, but it's a gray area. It's a gray area in the church. Should we have anything to do with that? I'll give, I'll give you another one. You want to hear another one that I guarantee most of us never thought about? Should Christians be handing out Easter eggs on Easter? I bet you never even thought about that. But do you know where Easter eggs came from? Anybody know where Easter eggs came from? Huh? Easter eggs, Easter eggs came from the chicken. That's no. Where did Easter eggs? Anyone know? Where did Easter eggs come from? Anyone know? Yeah, Babylonian fertility rites. Uh, it's actually the feast of Ishtar, is where we get the name Easter. And they would take Easter eggs to the temple because eggs were a sign of fertility, and then you would sleep with the temple prostitute so that your crops would be fertile. And yet here it has come across. So the question is, well, should Christians even have Easter eggs, right? It's a gray area. It's a gray area as we navigate. All right, anyone has to have, if you, I just have to say this gray area because you've wasted all my time already. I'm not. No, where? All right, right there. All right, one more. Social media. Social media. Yeah. All right, I'll put it there for you, but as long as you stay off of it, it's not gray. <laughs> Social media. Social media can surely become a gray area. Yes, it can. Yep. They didn't like your answer. <laughs> All right. I just want to say something about yoga. I, I believe that yoga is not a gray area because if you understand what, is, what yoga is all about, um, I've watched a program brought by a woman who came out of New Age, and yoga has been brought into the church, the exercise. Mm -hmm. There is no separation of the spiritual and the, and the physical. So when you do yoga, you are inviting evil spirits into your life. So, I love that you said that. Here's why I love that you said that. Because you just out loud helped us understand why this is an issue. Because you feel very, very firmly. See, you're one of the brothers who would say, 
man, I just, I just think that's darkness. I've looked into it. I'm just telling you my conscience is deeply, deeply bothered by this. And I'm, I would never participate, is what you're right. You would never participate. That's where your stance is. And yet I guarantee there's going to be Christians in this room and say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a little bit like Easter in the Easter eggs. And the reason that it's okay for Easter in the Easter eggs, it would have been horrible for us to do it back any time near the Babylonians because then everybody would have said, you're, you're worshiping false gods and you're relying on false gods for fertility and you have no business with those Easter eggs. But you and I fast forward to, to the 21st century and how many, how many people in the room knew that Easter eggs were associated with Babylonian fertility rites? Oh, a couple, there you go. Some of you did. Did you do Easter eggs? Bunch of pagans. All right. So, because here's what I'm telling you. Your seven-year-old daughter has no idea. There is not one moment when she's picking up that Easter egg that she's praying to a Babylonian fertility god. Right? There's not one moment that she's doing that. And so that would be the other that says, sure, that may have been something that was practiced for that purpose that way. But if I'm not practicing it for that purpose or that way, it's the same thing the guy's saying here. If I don't believe in the idol that was prayed to for that meat, and I don't believe that idol has any power, and you can say, well, there were demonic powers behind the idol, but I, I just don't think there's anything to that idol. And I feel freedom to eat, right? Hence, did you know that everything on this list Everything on this list is either currently highly debatable in the church or at some point in the past was highly debatable in the church as to whether or not a Christian should participate in it, okay? Thence, why they're called gray areas, okay, for the church, which is why figuring out how to navigate this is such a big deal for us because at the end of the day, I would hope that we all want to be able to do this with purity, and that we all want to be able to do this the right way before God together, right? Because that's what you have to do in the church. All right, so here we go. Let's, talk, let's see what Paul says about how to navigate this moment. So back to the passage, uh, verse 4. Here's what it says. Who are you uh, to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants must stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So what Paul's appealing to right now is to say, look, 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 we're all going to navigate this and we're all going to come to some decisions about this, but here's what you need to know ultimately. Every one of us is going to stand before the Lord and answer for what we did in this area. That, that's what this is. We're not going to be standing in judgment to each other. We're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for how we navigated this. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. All right. Verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day just alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special, uh, as special does so to the Lord. Okay. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, 
And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why are you judging your brother or your sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we all stand before the Lord's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord... Every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to who? To God. And Paul's first premise here is simply this. When we are navigating gray areas, when you and I as Christians are living in gray areas, who's the one that makes the final determination about how that gray area should have been lived? God. God. Now, let's stop a second, because here's what you need to hear me say. I tend to be a black and white kind of guy. I mean, I, I, man, I, I, I'd like for things just to all be either right or wrong, and let's just make it simple and move forward. There is nothing simple, and there is nothing black and white about this, right? It's gray. And we can argue all night long, well, that one's light gray, and that one's really dark gray, and that one's so dark, I think it's black. I, I get it. I get it. But it's gray. It's different shades of gray, which drives me a little crazy. I'm just going to be honest. I wish God would have just said, women, put your hem down to the knee. It would have been a lot easier. We would have known who all the sinners were. Right? It would have been a lot easier. It would have been a lot easier when I was a youth pastor. I could have said, hey, Hezekiah 3.9, lower the skirt. Right? But instead... God instead chose to say to women, be modest. And then asked women to navigate that in their own culture. Because guys, let's be honest. If God had made one rule, we'd all still be wearing 1888 swimsuits. Right? Right? And I, and I, I don't think any of us here is saying, hey, you know, in order to be godly, you, you know, you have to wear one of those, you know, 1888 swimsuits. Why do you think God left this open? Why do you think God left this? Because let's just be honest. Aren't people going to make mistakes with this? Aren't people going to take advantage of this? Aren't people going to violate this? So why was God willing to leave this open? Okay, microphone runners. God knows our hearts. So he knows our intent. So if, we'll just use yoga, if someone intentionally goes out and does yoga with a bad intent, it's going to be seen by God. It can't be seen by man. But if you're going to do yoga because it increases your circulation and all the other great benefits that come from yoga, then God's going to see that on your heart as well. Okay, so here's where I'm going to pause on that. And I, I think there's some validity to what you just said. Um... If I get in a car and drive it when I'm drunk, but I didn't intend to kill anybody, does it change the fact that I killed somebody? So intent is not a trump card. Because the truth is, we've made a ton of mistakes in our lives. The girl who said, I'm going to change him, when she started dating that non-Christian boy, I think she really intended to change him in the beginning. 
doesn't change the fact that it was a wrong decision, right? So, but I do agree with you, this is a hard issue. It is a hard issue that we're dealing with here. So why did God leave it open? Yeah? I think it, I think it has to do more with or coincides with the sanctification process with each of us as individuals. So how we grow over it. Modesty to me can be completely different than someone else. If I used to walk around in a thong and now I wear clothes, I'm modest, right? So seriously, I'm not, the sanctification process and where we all enter it at, I think, and maturity and how we grow. How does leaving this gray help with the sanctification issue, the growing up part of our lives? I think we're looking at um, if my brother is an alcoholic, then I won't bring alcohol into the house. Or if my sister is starting to get into yoga and I see that she's gravitating towards Buddha idols or something, I'm not going to bring an idol, even though I know that I don't believe in it. Mm -hmm. You know, because it might tempt her. So, just what's pleasing to God. Okay. Okay, so I love that you made those decisions. What was God hoping you would do when you made those decisions? There you go. Okay, I think it's clearly stated, uh, the answer in verses 6 through 8, that you put God first. As cultures change through the course of time, the gray zone changes. There's cultures all over the world that are different, and therefore the gray zone is different. But the premise of Christianity stays the same, that the Lord God should be first, and that's stated here in 14, 6 through 8, that when you are struggling or when you have a question on something or you're unsure, you've got to take it to God, and everything you do is for the Lord. So you ask yourself this question, am I doing this for the Lord? Am I walking the path that would be pleasing and glorifying to the Lord? And then that continues to grow the Christian and therefore the Christian faith. Okay. All right, let me, let me, and we're, we're, we're around it. Let me, let me see if I can get there. Um, okay, ladies, you're going to forgive me because I keep, I keep talking about dressing and stuff, but it's, it's the lowest hanging fruit. I've got a 16-year-old girl, and now she reads scripture that says, a young lady ought to dress modestly. Well, that's hard to navigate in our culture, right? Because she's living with a reality that says, I really would like to date, and I would like for boys to at least notice that I'm female. This is, you know, so... Potato sacks are not my first choice, right? And yet, if I'm going to be competitive in this culture, everything is pushing me, right, to be pretty slinky, pretty out there. So now, how do I navigate this as a Christian young woman, right? How do I, how do, I do this? Because God simply said, be modest, If that 16-year-old girl says, okay, I'm choosing to obey God and I'm going to be modest, but here's my question. How close can I get to the world and still be modest? 
right? I'm, I'm not going to obey God. I want to be modest, but I want to get as close to the world as I can possibly get to the world and still be modest. Same 16-year-old girl. I want to be sure that whatever I do in my dress honors my Lord and that I never violate his heart. It's a totally different question, isn't it? It moves her a totally different way in the conversation. And isn't it true that based on how she asked the question and how she lived it, you know an awful lot about her spiritual walk? Don't you? And isn't that true about every one of these issues? And shouldn't you and I, and I think what Paul is saying is, hey, how we approach this, how we navigate as Christians... Am I going to try to go to the very ends of my freedom? Am I going to try to be, take this as far as I can? Am I, going to, am I going to push that limit? Well, then that probably says a little bit about where you are biblically and spiritually right now. Or I'm going to, I'm going to be sure that whatever I do, I can just stand and go, I, I, you know, I, I've made sure that this is God-honoring in my life. Because how I answer that, says an awful lot about where I am in my walk. And I believe this is the reason God was willing to leave something gray. Because it forces me to navigate my heart toward God. And, God, and, and I think at the end of the day, God said, you know what, it's more important that you and I navigate the heart than that you find the letter of the law. I could have told you exactly what to do. But you navigating your heart was more important. Back to the passage. What, what are we doing on time? Four minutes. Four minutes. Okay, so let's see how far we can get. We're not going to land it all yet. All right. Um, verse 13. Stop, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind. Do not put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of your brother. I'm convinced that being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean of itself. He says, guys, I'm just going to tell you what. I'm, Paul's saying, I'm not even sure any of these are sin. I'm not even sure. Okay? I am not convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord, that, Jesus, that nothing is unclean of itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. So if I'm sitting there in that moment and I go, man, this probably is not the right movie for me to go to, then here's what Paul's saying in that moment. Then it's definitely the wrong movie for you to go to. The very fact that you had any doubt in your mind as to whether or not you could honor Jesus and go to that movie, if you're a Christ follower, you don't belong in that movie. Even if at the end of the day, it may not be a bad movie. But the fact that you weren't sure Think about this. If I'm standing here and I'm go, um, okay, I, I think maybe that movie would be wrong, but I don't know that it's wrong, so I'll go do it anyways. Isn't that a huge decision? Isn't that like a kid that says, you know, I don't know if this would break my dad's heart. I, I don't know if he'd be angry at me, but I'm going to do it anyways. How much more honoring is if that same kid says, you know what? I think that might bother my dad if I did that. So I'm not going to do it because I would never want to hurt my dad's heart. 
It's exactly what Paul was saying. It's a big deal. And if your conscience is bothered, if you have a doubt, if you think maybe this is wrong, then the reality is as a Christ follower, you shouldn't be doing it. But if you have absolute freedom, if you say in your mind, hey, I, I feel absolutely right before God, I will tell you, I attended The Passion of Christ. It was an R-rated movie. I believe there was no way to show the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and not be R-rated. The truth is, between you and me, guys, if they had showed you everything they did to Jesus, it might have been worse than R-rated. I, I believe it was absolutely sickening and revolting what they did to Jesus that day. I think he was turned into hamburger meat. I don't know that it was necessary to show that, but, but I will tell you, it's a hard day for you to find me in another R-rated movie. Because for me, for me as I navigate this before Christ, I just simply say, by the time you rated R, there's probably not a whole lot in there as a Christian I need to be seeing. Um, I think I did go to um, Saving Private Ryan. Because then it was just legs blowing off and I was okay with that, right? right? But you get what I'm saying? But here's what I'm telling you. I'm not going to sit here today and tell you that if you're a Christian and you go to an R-rated movie, you're a lesser Christian than me. Why? Because it's great. And God left that for you to navigate. He left that for you to figure out. But what I can say to you as your pastor is I hope you figure it out. I hope you take the time. I hope you're not cavalier about it. I hope you don't just jump in and go and say, hey, I'm a Christian and I got liberty and I can do anything I want to do. I would hope you would ask yourself, I wonder if Christ would want to go to this movie with me. I wonder if, I wonder if this is a true testimony of what a Christian ought to do. Because how you answer that question is going to say an awful lot about your heart and an awful lot about your walk with him. It just is. And it's why I think he left some things gray. He wanted you to have to figure out your heart. Okay? All right, I wore us out on time. Yes, we'll come back. We'll land this a little bit more uh, next week. We got almost all the way through it. But let's pray and be done. You guys got some kids to pick up. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we just simply come to you in this moment. God, this is frustrating. Can we just say that out loud? It's frustrating, especially for the black and white rule-following ones of us in the room who just wish sometimes that you just would have spelled it out. And yet, and yet you would have turned us into rule-followers and not heart-followers. And so you chose, you chose to do some, some, leave some things that would be hard to navigate and that would cause some controversy in our lives and some things that we would disagree even amongst Christian brothers and sisters about. You left them there and you left them undone and you left them gray so that we, in the process of navigating them, would have to figure out our hearts. And God, I just ask, I ask that you would help us as we do navigate the gray in our lives to always land on the side that says, if God has not given me full freedom, then I won't do it because I never want to risk hurting the heart of my Heavenly Father. I'd rather, I'd rather miss out on doing a couple things than to take the chance that my Lord would be disappointed with me. And yet, God, the other side of it is, if we have freedom... If we have that, that opportunity and we know in our hearts that it's pure and okay to do, then God, let us have the, the joy of living that part of our life in freedom and without guilt 
and we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. See you guys next week.